Ephesians 5, page 978. As a younger person, uh, life uh, seems like it's going to take forever. It seems long. It seems like events in life, things that we look forward to are so far away. And they, they will never, seems like they will never get here. But as we age, we learn that life is actually not long. Life is actually quite short. And the days go by in a hurry. James chapter 4 verse 14 tells us that life is a mist. It is a vapor uh, that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. And so we ought to ask ourselves, what are we doing with our life? What are we doing with our time? What are we doing with what we've been given? What is the goal here? What is the objective of life? What what is the objective of the the life that you are living, of the choices that you are making? As we come to a new year, it is is normal uh, for many of us to consider consider our life, or in some cases, reconsider our life, our choices, to think about new habits or new disciplines, uh, to make commitments to change, to stop doing certain things or to start doing other things. But maybe, uh, like me, you can identify that with the the rush of life, uh, honest consideration and assessment of, of our life is pretty hard to do. Uh, For many of us, uh, life is moving so quickly. We have so many things to do. And on top of that, we have so many distractions that keep us from even thinking about these bigger picture ideas. Uh, For some, the distraction and the noise are actually ways to avoid these questions. If I can distract myself, I don't have to think about these kind of Questions. I don't have to think about these big issues in my life, these choices that I'm making, or the way in which my life is going. Christian philosopher who lived in the 1600s, Blaise Pascal, wrote, all of, human, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Most of us don't like to sit quietly in a room alone because we're left with ourself. <laughs> And we have, to think, we have to think our thoughts. We have to consider our own situation. We can't be distracted with the television or with media or with any other, uh, any other way. This morning, whether you like it or not, I'm inviting you to sit quietly, though you're not alone here uh, today, but sit quietly and to think, uh, to contemplate, uh, to consider what it is that you're doing with your life. How are you using the life that God has given you? How are you using the the time that God has given to you or the time that you have left, we might say, that God has given to you? We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. and In the context of of Ephesians 5, we understand that Paul is the writer here, the Apostle Paul. And he does something that he does in several of his books. He divides the book, and you could divide it into two two parts, really. Uh, The first part of the book is doctrine. And the second part of the book is practice or, or application. Uh, Paul begins with a lot of uh, truth, gospel truths. And then he moves to how those truths should affect the way we live. So we could say gospel truths and gospel living. 
Or we could summarize the epistle like this. Chapters 1 through 3 are orthodoxy, while chapters 4 through 6 are orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is right thinking. Orthopraxy is right living. So Paul first addresses our, our, our thoughts or our theology, our doctrine, and then he addresses how that doctrine affects the way we live. And so we're going to look at part of chapters 4 through 6, that's in chapter 5, but we want to understand that, that Paul is basing this all on what he's already written. Right? So one of the difficulties when we preach a, a passage out of the Bible and we take that passage out of the middle of the, of the text, we might not understand what's going on all around it, right? It's one of the dangers of, of even taking verses out of the Bible and misunderstanding the context and making them mean certain things. So when we read this, Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. He's writing to people who, are, who, who have a, a new identity in Christ. And he's talking to them about how, that should, how they should live. What, what does it look like to live this way? How should a Christian live in light of the truths of the gospel? In light of what Christ has done? And here in the verses that we're going to look at in Ephesians 5, we can see that Paul gives us, the, we're going to see three actions for, for right living. Or three actions for walking in the light or, or walking in, in wisdom. And the first comes in verse 15. And we see it here. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Now, verse 15 says, look carefully then. Uh, the word then is, is a, a uh, conjunction between this section of Scripture and the, the section that precedes it. So we often can understand a, a therefore. Uh, we recognize that as a conjunction. But the word then here is also a conjunction. And it's connecting what Paul has already said. In the immediate context, that's obviously the verses preceding it, verses 1 through uh, 14. But the larger context here, Paul is calling Christians to walk in, in a new life, in the new life of, of God's children, which means to verse 1 of chapter 5, look up to it, says, therefore imitate God as beloved, as beloved children. So this new life that we're, we're brought into, the old man is put off, that the new man is put on, that this new life, we are to walk in love, we're to imitate God, we're to walk in the light. This, this word walk is used several times in Paul's writing. And we know that in the Bible, it's another way of saying live or, or behave. If we're to, to walk in love or walk in light or walk in wisdom or walk in the same way that, that God tells us to or Jesus, we mean live. We, we mean a way of life when we talk about this idea of walking. Here in chapter 5, verses 3 through 14, getting closer to our passage now, there's a contrast between the one who's walking in love and light versus the, the sons of disobedience who walk in darkness. So we see a, a light and dark thing happening here. John, the Apostle John, uh, the, the writer John also does this throughout his writings. Um, but we see light and dark or, or day and night in a minute we'll see in, in John. So we see this contrast between these two waves of life. And then Paul says, closing this, that section out in verse 14, look at it there. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Basically, uh, Paul is saying, wake up. Wake up, sleeper. Uh, wake up from your slumber. Stop sleepwalking through life. Pay attention. 
Awake, O sleeper. And then he goes directly then into verse 15. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Look, or, or, or see, or beware, or pay attention, or, or watch, or consider. Look carefully. Look, look diligently. Look, look accurately. This, this is going to take some, some attention. This is not something we just kind of casually do. Paul is saying, look at it. Consider it. Diligently consider it. And he goes on to say, not as unwise, but as wise. So another contrast here. Um, here between the, what is un, called unwise and what is wise. And in order to walk in this way, we must have wisdom. That's what Paul is saying. Not, not as someone who doesn't know what's going on unwise, but someone who is wise. And then we ask ourselves, well, well, where does wisdom come from? How can I walk as someone who's wise and not unwise? Well, where does wisdom come from? And from the whole of the Bible, we can look back to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So where does wisdom start? And from where does it come? From God, from fearing God from worshiping God. We will not know or understand God's will or walk in his way or live right if we do not know God. If you don't know God, you're not going to know God's way. If you're not listening to God, you're not going to know his will. If you don't know his word, you won't know how to walk. And sometimes we get off track here. Sometimes Christians get off track here. Sometimes we think we know a lot about what the Bible says, and yet we don't live out what the Bible says. I want to take you to an example of this back in the Old Testament, the book of Haggai. Chapter 1, if you go with me there, if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 791. The prophet Haggai is sent by God to the people of Israel. The people of Israel had come out of, out of the Babylonian captivity. This is 520 BC, and the Lord confronts them about their, their ways. In verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So the word of the Lord comes, thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. These people, the Israelites, have said, that it's not time yet to rebuild the house of the Lord. So the people had returned to the land, but they had not rebuilt the temple. They had not completed the rebuild of the temple. That is the, the house of the Lord called there in verse 2. And what exactly the people meant here by the time had yet not yet come. What, why had the time not yet come? There's some different ideas about that. But no matter what they meant, what they were doing was making excuses for not rebuilding the temple. The time had not yet come. We're not ready to do that just yet. Uh, we could say, humanly speaking, it's never the quote-unquote right time. Uh, meaning that the doing God's work, in this case, rebuilding the temple, is, is always going to have opposition. There's always an excuse that one could give for not doing the work of God. For not doing what God has called us to do. There's always going to be opposition. There's always going to be difficulty, no, no matter when it takes place. Whenever something beautiful or good is coming into the world, there, there will always be obstacles. But making excuses for not doing what we should do does not change that we are not doing what we should do. And so it was with the Israelites. 
You can make all the excuses for why you're not rebuilding the temple, but the fact of the matter is you're not rebuilding the temple. And that was a problem for God. Excuses do not justify wrong choices or wrong living. And we don't have to take, we don't have to live very long to recognize that, that by nature, humans do what they want to do. You notice that? People do what they want to do. Rarely do we not do what we want to do. That is rarely the case. We, we somehow find a way, no matter what it is, somehow we find a way to do the things that, that we want to do. And here, the house of the Lord had not been completed, which we should note was not a small issue for the Israelites. The Israelites had a covenant relationship with God. Uh, the, the temple was not like a church is today. The temple was the place where, where they went, uh, a physical place. That Their relationship with God had a very significant connection with the temple. And so the lack of a temple was something to be said about their relationship with God or their concern about their relationship with God. Nevertheless, while the temple remained unfinished, the people, we find out, were busy rebuilding their own houses. Now, they couldn't rebuild the house of God, but they could rebuild their own houses. And so what we find is for whatever excuses they were making, the choice to not rebuild the temple was intentional. It was not accidental. It was not an oversight. It wasn't like, oh yeah, we should rebuild the temple sometime. No, no, no. This was an intentional, we're not going to do that. The time's not right, but there's apparently enough time and plenty of time for me to be doing what I want to do, and that is build my own house. Verse 3 that says, and then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And this is the word of the Lord. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? That's the house of the Lord. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Haggai was exposing that the selfishness of the Israelites. The Lord was exposing the selfishness of the Israelites through the prophet as they were putting themselves ahead of the Lord. They were putting their project ahead of the Lord's project. They had concerned only, they had become concerned only about themselves. Warren Wearsby writes it like this, this sin is with us today, putting our desires ahead of the will of the Lord. How easy is it to make excuses for not doing God's work, end quote. And so God sent a prophet to rebuke the people and to call them to consider, to think about, to, to contemplate your ways. Limitations chapter 3 verse 40 says something similar. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Haggai was encouraging or urging them to evaluate what they were doing, or in this case, what they weren't doing. Verse 6 tells us that God would not bless their work because of their selfishness. And as we, if we kept reading in the passage there, after having been kind of called out by the Lord, verses 7 through 11, they are called into action. They're, they're told what they should be doing. And then verses 12 through 15, we find out that the people obeyed, that they feared the Lord. And then the Lord stirred up workers who began to do the work of rebuilding the temple. God called them to reconsider, to consider their ways, 
They recognized what they were not doing and they started doing what they should be doing. Back to Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Some of us may not be walking with the Lord as he called us to. But here's the good news. Like he used Haggai to confront and to remind, to rebuke the Israelites, he uses his word to confront, remind, and rebuke us. And we too, like the Israelites, can change. You can change. You can change. You don't have to continue in the path that you're on. You don't have to continue in that that sin habit that you've struggled with for years and years again. You don't have to. Christian, you don't have to. Change happens. And change happens when we're confronted by God's word and empowered by God, we repent and turn from our sin. And we need to hear this. We need to hear what the Israelites heard from Haggai. Consider your ways. How are you caught up living for yourself to the neglect of the Lord? To the neglect of his word and his will and his way? Jesus calls us not to seek first our needs. You remember Matthew 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Jesus says, don't worry first about your own needs. Worry about my kingdom. And guess what? Your needs will get met. I'll take care of that. Show where the priority is to be. And God will take care of the rest. Like the Israelites, we may have excuses. But God knows the truth. He knows our hearts. So consider your ways. Confess your sin and turn, committing yourself to God. Look carefully. Secondly, we see in verse 16, Paul continues. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. How the New King James renders this, redeeming the time because the days are evil. This idea of redeeming is to to buy the time or to work urgently, or to do something with intensity, to take full advantage of every opportunity, to make good use of opportunity. To redeem the time means to live on purpose. God has given us opportunities, and we are not to miss them. Redeem the time. The the, the time here, there's different words in the original language for time. One of those refers to minutes, hours, uh, chronology. Uh, The other one refers to seasons or occasions or opportunities. And that's what this word means here. Redeem the season, redeem the the, the occasion, the the opportunity. This refers to to moments uh, of a special significance or that are favorable. James Montgomery Boyce says that this means that time is to have this full or meaningful element for the wise Christian. Time is precious and it's important. We have been given this time and so we are to redeem it. And we are to redeem it because it is meaningful. But that's not the only reason why we redeem it. Paul then gives a motive for this way of living The rest of verse 16, because, so redeem the time, why? Because the days, uh, because the days are for evil. Look at verse, or in verse 16. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. For Paul, the idea here of the days being evil may have been that uh, there was persecution 
There was the reality of the persecution that was there and the consequence of the persecution. Um, not only physical, but, but that gospel opportunities would be minimized or even, even lost. But the truth here, there's truth here for us too. Uh, certainly the persecution concept remains. Uh, Christians in the 21st century are, are no stranger to, um, to persecution. Maybe not in the United States at this time, but around the world. But even outside of the coming persecution, the days here, as he writes them, because the days are evil, um, the days left to themselves are naturally evil. They're bent, they have a natural bent of evil. We live in a fallen world in which there is much evil. And we are called to live in this world, we know that. We're called to not be of this world, we know that, which requires much wisdom for us to do that, to, to live in a fallen world in, in, in the midst of evil days, so to speak, but live redeeming those days. Live in a way that's, that's honoring God, a way of, of holiness in the midst of the world which is hostile towards God and to, to, towards the gospel. We are called here to do what matters. Right? Redeem the time. Do what matters. Because the days are evil. And I ask you, how are you redeeming the time? How are you making the best use of your time, of your opportunities, of your occasions, of the seasons that God has put you into? How are you living on purpose or with purpose? How are you fulfilling God's will? We see in the Gospels that Jesus knew something about this. Turn with me to John chapter 9. Again, if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 895. 895. Just look at one example here of, of Jesus understanding what it means to live on purpose. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And when, that's, uh, when this blind man uh, comes, the, the disciples want to know um, why he's blind. Uh, is he blind because someone has sinned or, or has he sinned or, or his parents sinned um, in order that he would then be born blind? So they're making an assumption here that his blindness was a result of sin. You see the correlation or the logic that they're jumping to. And Jesus corrects that. Look at verse 3. It says, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed. Uh, Sometimes, sometimes human suffering exists not because of sin, but it's allowed so that God's power is revealed in deliverance. So that God gets the glory for the healing. Now, it's not always healing that God gets the glory for. Sometimes God gets the glory for sustaining us in the midst of the suffering. But in this case, in John 9, the man was born blind in order that the works of God might be displayed. In order that his deliverance might be displayed for this man's life right now in chapter 9. Well, verses 6 and 7 his miraculous healing happened, that God did, in fact, heal the blind man. But before he did that, he made an important statement about what he was doing. Look at verse 4. 
It says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Let's point out three things about this verse. First, we, we see what the work that Jesus is talking about. We must work the works, what are the works? Of him who sent me. What's the work that Jesus was doing? He was doing the works of the Father. Jesus was after doing the will of the Father. We know that Jesus was sent by the Father. We see that throughout John's gospel. And he was about or um, sensitive to, passionate for the will of the Father. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, Jesus came to do what God wanted him to do. Jesus was submitted to the will of the Father. Jesus wanted to do what God wanted him to do. He used his life for God's will. So not only do we see what he, we are to do, but then when, when to work. What does Jesus say here? While it is day. While it is day. Now, John's going to use this day and night uh, metaphor here in this verse. And while it is day, it is to say that there's an allotment of time that this work was to be done in. Another writer says, this is a designated period of completion. So for Jesus, when Jesus says, we must do the works of him who sent, sent me, he's saying there's a, a designated period of time that I have to fulfill what God has called me to do. And specifically for Jesus, that was his earthly ministry. That was, there's three intense years of ministry that the Gospels record for us. While it is day, while it is day, the time is now, Jesus is saying. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Now, there's urgency here. There's a sense in which we use every opportunity that is available. We don't waste time. We do the work now. J.C. Ryle has said, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the Lord's day. We do it now. That's true of salvation. It's also true of whatever we are called to. Now is the time. Today is the day. While it is day, that's when we do the work. Why? The second, excuse me, the third point is why to work. The rest of the verse. Night is coming when no one can work. Again, we see this light and dark, day and night imagery. If the day speaks to Jesus' earthly ministry, the night would speak to his death or his crucifixion. And day meant the, the opening of an opportunity, while the night meant the close of the opportunity. Jesus saying is the night is coming or the end is coming. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, while I still have time. You don't know how long your time is. I don't know how long my time is. While it is day, we still have time now. So we must work the works of him who sent us. Jesus was living with the end in view. The night is coming with, with eternity in view. Then verse 5 says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Or, or literally this says, I am the light, I am light of the world whenever I am in the world. So Jesus understood his purpose. While I'm here, while it is day, I am light. I am the light. That's my job. But when Jesus left, 
Who did he leave to continue the job? His followers. It's not just his job, it's our job. When Jesus was gone, it was his followers who were to be the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5 tells us, Jesus tells us just that. We are the light of the world to point other people to Christ. And you might be thinking, isn't this Jesus talking about his ministry? You keep talking about us, part of this. Well, look at verse 4 again. And it says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Who's the we? He's talking to his disciples. So it's obviously Jesus and his disciples. But by extension, it's all Christians. The application is that that we must work the works of him. And we are not sent by the Father. We are sent by the Son. But we are sent by the Son to do what the Son did as sent by the Father. That is to fulfill the will of God. That is to make disciples and bring him glory. We are not Jesus. We're not doing miracles and, and healing people. But as Jesus was sent on mission, we are sent on mission. As the Father sent the Son, so the Son sends you and me. As Jesus was sent to do the will of the Father, we too are sent to do the will of the Father. Like Jesus, we have an allotted period of time in which to do the will of the Father, in which to do the work to which we are called. You and I only have one life. We only have one life, you know that. And so therefore, we don't waste it. Jesus shows us how to live here. He shows us how to make the best use of our time. He did just that. So we go back to Ephesians chapter 5. So we have seen the Apostle Paul tell us to look carefully how we are to walk, to make the best use of our time. And then finally in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Look carefully, redeem the time, understand what the will of the Lord is. It's as we consider our ways, as we determine to make the best use of our time, that we will be in the place to understand what the will of the Lord is. And actually, we can understand what the will of the Lord is by reading his word, even right here. What is the will of the Lord? Look to the next verse in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirits. There, there are two uh, imperatives or two commands there in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine. That's an imperative. That's a command. And then be filled with the Holy Spirit is a second command. Be controlled by the Spirit. To be filled by the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. And how does the Spirit control us? But through his word. If you look at the parallel passage as he writes to the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, right in this section where he would have said something very similar to what he said, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let God's word dwell in you. Let God's word control you. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here in verse 18, we see part of the revealed will of God. Part of the revealed will of God is that we are filled with the Spirit, that we are controlled by the Spirit to do what God wants us to do. That's not the only part of God's revealed will. Throughout the New Testament, we see multiple places where God tells us explicitly what his will is. We just saw one of those there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, we find that salvation is the will of God. 
God wants, wants all people. He desires that all people come to repentance. The will of God that you be saved. If you're here this morning, you've yet to come to Christ. It's the will of God that you would be saved. It's the will of God that you repent of your sin and believe on Jesus Christ by grace and through faith. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, we find out that sanctification is God's will. That God's will is that, that once we come to know him, once we're filled with the Spirit, we are set apart from sin. We become increasingly more and more like Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we find out that submission to God and to the authorities over us is God's will. It is God's will for you and I to submit to God and to our authorities. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 17 tells us that suffering, suffering for his name's sake is actually part of God's will for us. It is God's will that Christians would suffer for his name. We need to look carefully to ask ourselves about our lives, to, to see if, if we are making the best use of our time or of the time that we have left. Now, some of us might look back at, at our past and regret many of the things that we did or didn't do. It doesn't necessarily serve us very well because we can't undo what we have done or haven't done. But we have enough time to do what we should do now. Look carefully, redeem the time, and understand what the will of the Lord is. And are you doing that this morning? Are those the actions that you're taking? Are you looking carefully how you're walking? Are you committed to make the best use of your time? Don't waste it. And are you understanding what it is that God wants for me? There are a lot of things about the will of God that we might never understand. You might refer to that as the secret will of God. But there is a revealed will of God that all of us can know and can obey. Those are the things that we just referred to. The word of God is sufficient to confront us and to lead us to change, as it did for the Israelites by the hand of Haggai. But we need to know this, that any change that happens only occurs by God's grace and God's power. I didn't read it for you, but in the story of uh, Haggai chapter 1, when Haggai told them what to do, the next passage says that they, uh, they, were, they feared the Lord, they obeyed, and then it says that the, the Lord stirred up their spirit. The Lord enabled them, we could say, to obey, to actually do the work. Any change that happens, and change can happen, but any change that does happen is not apart from God's enablement. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. So not only does that include our changes, it means anything. And that also means even believing. Do you know that apart from, from Jesus, you, we can't even believe? <laughs> Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Without God, we can do nothing. We can't even believe on our own. It's only through God's empowerment. It's only through God's enlightening that we see our sin and give, he gives to us the gift of faith to believe. It's only as we're convicted of our sin 
we recognize what wrong we have done, what the will of the Lord is for us, that we then obey. And so Christian, know this, that you are sent. As Jesus was sent, you are sent. You are sent to make disciples and to glorify God. You are filled. You are filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5, verse 18 tells us. You're controlled by the Word. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a is spirit-indwelt being who is living out the mission of God, enabled by God. So sent by Jesus, filled by the Spirit, enabled by God, strengthened by His grace, empowered by God Himself. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, by the grace, by grace I am what I am. It's only the grace of God that enables us to do what we do. In fact, he does enable us to do what we do. And so we end by asking this, will you consider your ways? Will you change accordingly? And by grace, will you commit to follow the Lord today? May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. As we hear Paul's words of what right action looks like, what right living looks like, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that we would look carefully of how we are walking, that we would make the best use of the the time that you've given to us, and that we would understand what you want from us. You would understand, we would understand your will and obey it. We look to Jesus as not only the example, but the way in which we do this. Hebrews 12 tells us, reminds us, we run the race and we run it by looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Oh God, would you help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh God, you raise-